preaching of God's Word is in Zechariah chapter 12, and there at verse 10. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The passage before us meets us at a time in biblical history where there was much for which to be thankful. The Lord had indeed blessed and there was a return to Jerusalem. There was the repairing of the temple and many other such encouragements that were underway. And yet, there was still the anticipation of a far greater work of God, which is, of course, that which is before us in verse 10, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Savior. We see that, of course, both in the text itself, as the one speaking is the one who will pour upon the house of David. This is God. And yet, the one speaking says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Isn't that interesting? I will pour out and they'll look upon me whom they've pierced and they shall mourn for him. Of course, we saw in the reading of John 19, verse 37, that this is fulfilled historically, the piercing, that is, of this one with the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And then the spirit of grace and supplication poured out, which brings about repentance we see at Pentecost. And so you can see so many things coming together in these various related passages. Pentecost, the Spirit of God's poured out. The preaching of Christ crucified is held forth. And what's said? People are pricked in their hearts. And they feel the bitterness of their own sins and wickedness. And they cry out to God for salvation. And so we see this historically fulfilled in the person of Christ, both in His crucifixion but also in His ascension and pouring out the Spirit and bringing about through the ministry of the preaching of the Gospel this repentance and drawing of sinners to Himself. And yet this is not merely bound and tied to the historical fulfillment because just as those very Jews did not literally pierce Him through with their own hands, but rather by their sinful carriage they brought about His crucifixion, so it is that all who have a hand in the piercing of Christ are to be experiencing the great things here spoken of in verse 10. And this is fitting for us because we, of course, have the Lord's Supper approaching, which is the remembrance of Christ pierced, crucified, and that on our behalf. And we remember Christ say in the Lord's Supper that this is my body broken for you, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And there is embedded within that very memorial and meal and fellowship and communion the reminder that Christ was pierced through for us. We can't escape it with the cross. Our sins loom large upon the scene. Indeed, there would be no cross were there no sins. And yet, not sins generally, but the sins of God's beloved people. Christ did not die generally for the sinfulness of man in general, but He died specifically 
for the sins of His people. Which means, when you see the agony of Christ, and not just His bodily anguish, but the spiritual torment, as He indeed was swallowed up of hell, the wrath of God poured out, you ought to make this connection. I pierced Him. My sins are what He's suffering for. Not sin generally. Not sin in the abstract. But sin from your being, from your existence. Now, brethren, it is understandable when this is before us why it is that Zechariah 12, verse 10 says that they shall mourn for Him. They'll mourn for Him because there's a realization His suffering is my cause. I've caused this to be brought to pass. Not that I forced His hand in this, but that there would be no suffering of the beloved Savior Jesus Christ were it not for my sins. And it does us no good to say, well, you know, it's not just my sins, it's their sins and so on. That may be true. There are others, of course. But it, it has to do with our sins and the cause of our disobedience with God. When that is realized and the sufferings of Christ and the torment He endured are then joined together, it brings a bitterness in our souls over our sins. This is one aspect of repentance. Children perhaps will know and will be familiar with the terms of repentance. It's a saving grace. And we see that here. It's God pouring out upon the house of David the spirit of grace and supplication. And it is whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin. And you can see that in their perceiving of Christ crucified, but also out of the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, which is front and center in this passage. They, with grief and hatred for their sin, turn from it unto God. And they do this with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. We see this in the text We see it in many other texts. But one thing that we wish to focus on particularly with reference to repentance is that the Spirit of God by His grace uses the believing consideration of Christ crucified to bring about repentance. This is something, if ignored, will cause the Christian great pain. Because they'll think the cross is supposed to make me happy. Why am I feeling down? And it'll cause this error of false piety that says, well, when Christians are thinking about Christ and they're not happy, something's wrong with them. Because what we see is the text is telling us when we consider Christ crucified, there is an inescapable impact upon us because we are the cause of His suffering that will bring about a deepening of repentance. And so you'll notice how thorough it is, even in part stated, when it says in verse 11, in that day shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Verse 12, the land shall mourn, every family apart. It's not a celebration, it's not a feast, it's one isolating and all uh, marital privileges are forestalled. Notice the house of David and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan and their wives apart. All of these other things are set aside because they're taken up with the grief of their sins in the wonder of a loving Savior who died for them. Now this is not to be separated from the true fountain of joy 
but it is to make us realize that if we know Christ and consider Him well as He is crucified, we ought to expect the reality of repentance. We can say from the outset, if someone isn't experiencing repentance, whatever else they're thinking about Christ is an ill thought. True believing apprehensions of God's mercy in Christ is a chief cause, an inseparable cause of repentance. We think of this theme in particular, particular as part of examining ourselves because as we examine ourselves, we necessarily discover sins. And when we discover sins, it's a call to us to turn from them. And yet, brethren, it's when we realize this and we look at our world which has no place for repentance, it has all place for acceptance of self and you know, being pleased with ourselves and whatever others say, don't worry about yourself, you know, you be content and happy and so on. But the Bible comes and summarizes entrance into his kingdom with this word, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Bible holds it forth and we see that and then we're tempted to think, well then, the world has got it wrong, much of the visible church has got it wrong, so we need to focus on repentance. And subtly what can happen is this replacement of evangelical repentance with a legal and man-cultivated repentance. And so the text before us helps us navigate the errors of our age and also promotes true biblical piety within our souls as focused upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So consider three things regarding this repentance in the light of Christ's cross. Firstly, the experience of this repentance. Secondly, the motivating focus of this repentance. And thirdly, the gracious cause of this repentance. So firstly, then, the experience. And this is where we instantly realize why the world, and even some professing Christians, have little thought about repentance. Because the experience in general is grief. What does the world want with grief? The world wants happiness. The world wants gladness. The church wants happiness and gladness. And any hint of grief is looked upon as something to be avoided with good understanding. But brethren, what's astounding is when you measure out the Bible's teaching on this theme, it's this grief which brings forth the greatest gladness. To neglect this grief is to ensure, is to guarantee that whatever gladness you have in this life will be beneath the greatest gladness. And so with all of the attacks against grief and sorrow and repentance and remorse and all of those things which are near, almost equal if not above, cuss words of our age, what's actually taking place is Satan and the world is ensuring that the greatest joy and gladness is kept from our experience. This repentance is likened unto a mourning See that when it says that they shall mourn. And it's then furthered by way of comparison as one mourneth for his only son, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. To mourn is to 
lament and sorrow and weep over the loss, here it is, of one's only son. All of the expectation that a newborn brings into the life of a family and to see that one perish brings up such grief as in truth only those who experience it can truly know it. Others are able to enter in sympathetically, empathetically by considering what it would be like, but the inward grief and torment of soul over that is unmistakably difficult. And this is what repentance is like and done too. There are deep troubles, deep sorrows, deep grievings of soul that take place when there is repentance. This grief, of course, leads to necessary action because the grief is fundamentally about the sins for which Christ was crucified. You can see this marriage between remorse or mourning or grief and activity when you look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. Paul had written to them of their negligence and their glorying in that which was wicked. And in doing so, they by God's grace were brought to repent. You see that report in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. I rejoice... Not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Can we say as an aside, perhaps this is why the world so detests sorrow, grief, because it's merely a worldly and earthly and carnal sort. And it may be one reason why many in the church today have little place or consideration for cultivating gracious sorrow because they've mistaken carnal sorrow, earthly sorrow, which works death, for that which is godly sorrow that works repentance to salvation. Notice Paul goes on, Behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, Yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. All things you've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice Paul's contrasting earthly carnal sorrow with godly, God-given sorrow. Earthly sorrow mourns, weeps, and You know, godly sorrow mourns and weeps. And so outwardly, there may be appearances that are similar. Tears, downcast looks, and in some sense, even despondency for a season. But the difference is marked by the activity that follows. Godly sorrow, this repentance, brings about a turning from sin. And a turning unto Christ. As we see, of course, at Pentecost, they're cut through, pierced in their own hearts, because of the one who was pierced for them, and they then turned to Him. Many who were there at Pentecost were there at uh, uh, Pilate's very trial, and they were among the ones who said, Crucify Him! And now they're coming to Him whom they said, Crucify Him. And they're saying, Receive us, forgive us. You see, repentance has a grief, but a grief by God's grace which orders them unto true change. And you'll notice 
It is an experience of sincere grief. It's not merely outward. It's not merely fabricated by uh, the passing of uh, a season of manipulating emotions. But it is a grounded and sincere grief. Such sincerity as those who have lost children would know. Someone comes alongside a grieving parent, it's unmistakable that their grief is real. You know, words fail us in that moment. How can we say anything that will actually uphold them? We realize there's something here that is beyond our ability to help. And yet, the grief that's noted in this repentance is similar. It's as one that mourns for his only son, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So brethren, before we move on, notice that the experience of repentance is a difficult experience. It's an experience we understand why the flesh revolts against it. You set a day of humiliation and fasting personally, or you observe one called by the session or presbytery or general assembly, and you realize that everything that remains of carnal self is at war against what is trying to be cultivated. I don't want to sorrow. I certainly don't want to sorrow over spiritual things. And so our bodies fatigue and our minds chase after other things. And we, as it were, have to know the grace of God to bring us to that thing. It's no mistake why our present age, which is self-indulgent and luxurious, has little place for cultivating repentance. We ought not to try and make it appear better than it is. It is really sorrowful to look upon one's sins and the effect of one's sins upon the cross. Such is the experience. But brethren, notice secondly the motivating focus. And here's where we start to pick up a thread which will carry us to the riches of of hope. The motivating focus for this experience of repentance is Christ crucified. Now, who can ever capture all of the outflow of what should come to us from considering Christ crucified? We have to acknowledge there's a treasury of diverse and variegated uh, uh, jewels and precious metals and it takes us series upon series and week upon week and year upon year and indeed eternity upon eternity fully to gather all that flows out of Christ. But here we notice that as we consider Christ crucified, it does bring about this repentance. So you see it in the text quite simply. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. And of course, John 19.37 quotes this text in relationship to Christ crucified. And so here is the difficulty for our age. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has so many things coming together in it, but one thing that comes to us by it is evangelical, gospel-motivated, gracious repentance. And so we understand the joy, we understand the gladness, and yet this can't be divorced from it as a feature of the cross. 
when we understand the agony of Christ, we can't help but understand something of the depths of our own remorse. Here is Christ crucified. Now, think of that for a moment. Here is the eternal Son of God who is only good, who is perfectly worthy of your entire adoration, service, obedience, and gladly so. And yet, as you consider Christ on the cross, you have to realize this quite personally. His agony is because of you. That's a heavy message, but it needs to be said again. You are the cause of His agony. Your sins that you smiled over, your sins that you justified, your sins that you planned out, your sins that you deliberately said, well, I could go this way or that way, and that way is the right way, but I'll go this way. These things which brought you pleasure, these things which brought you joy are perverted things, corrupted things, disorderly things, wicked things. You are the cause of His torment. Because on the cross, what Christ is experiencing is damnation. Here the Son of God incarnate, who is the beloved Son of God, who is the one that the Father said is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, whom all of the angels are created by and for, and never cease worshiping. How can the angels understand you and me? How can they rightly consider what we are? Well, we're made in His image, and we turn against Him and are shown so many mercies, temporal and otherwise, and yet we still go and sin against Him. How can they understand us who have been redeemed and still sin against God? They can't understand it personally, surely, because their type, angels, when once they sinned, have an inescapable torment from which there is no deliverance. This is what demons have. And yet to us, the Gospel comes. And it testifies of one who took our own nature and in our own nature fulfilled all righteousness such that He is the spotless Lamb of God. He never once turned to the right or to the left. He never once compromised for convenience sake. He never once thought, well, I'll soften this so that I can get by a little bit more of comfort in this life. But rather, He walked straight on directly in the path of righteousness. And what He receives for it is the wretchedness of damnation upon the cross. But this is because He was made the sin-bearer. Isaiah 53, of course, opens this for us quite fully and clearly that our iniquities were laid upon Him. Our sins, our transgressions were accounted to Him. He was made to be sin for us. He was cursed for us. Though He knew no sin, He was made a curse. And when we start to capture this theme of Christ crucified, we start to see why it actually humbles us. At the same time, elevating us. Because we see in Christ one who is Himself altogether lovely, who had done nothing ever to deserve the least 
shame, the least agony, the least pain, whereas you and I, by our sins, have only done what should bring upon us the heaping of shame, agony, torment, and pain. Notice how particularly this is stated in the text when it says, whom they have pierced. Again, there were but few hands involved in the literal bodily piercing of Christ's body. The few soldiers that nailed His limbs to the cross, the one soldier that pierced His side, there were few hands that were literally involved in this. And so what this is speaking of, of course, is the cause of those things. That His piercing is because of our sins. And the lack of bitterness over the cross is because of a lack both of a knowledge of our sins as well as a knowledge of Christ and His love. When Christ crucified for us is understood, it cannot but bring about repentance. This is important for us to note for a moment. It's not simply the historical looking upon Christ. There were countless multitudes who looked upon Christ pierced and were never changed. There were those who were there with the crowd, shouted out, crucify Him, and turned away never to repent. We'll see in a moment that this is a spiritual fruit of grace. But for our moment, we note that it's Christ crucified as apprehended by faith. It's faith looking upon Christ crucified, seeing not the external agony only, but the spiritual transaction that's taking place on the cross. He is suffering the cursed death of the cross in my place for me. We think for a moment of all that that entails and we isolate but one thought of it all and we say, how can we think of sin with any pleasure when we think of Christ's agony for our sin. And you start to see this contradiction in the Christian. Now it's acknowledged in the Scriptures that as a Christian is a new creature and yet retains something of the old man, there is this warfare at work. And you see, this is actually one of the things that heightens the sensitivity and the very hatred against our own sins. Why is it that Paul says, the good that I would, I do not, and that which I do, I would not? He finds this internal grief. He sorrows. He cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. Why is that the case? It's not just because of sin. It's also because every sin we've committed, every sin we will commit as believers, is a sin that pierced Christ through. And the more we consider His love and His willingness to suffer for us, the more we look upon our sins, which are in some sense the agents, the instruments that were plunging upon Him and bringing Him into the depths of agony. How can we find any pleasure in sin? That we do is a grief to the Christian. The Christian has to step back and confess there is a wretched pleasure my flesh still finds in sin. 
The very sins for which Christ died. The very sins for which Christ so willingly and powerfully gave Himself. My sins, seen by the light of the cross, are reprehensible. You see on the cross a number of things, but one thing you see is hell. Hell is on the cross. On the cross, you see in one sense, temporally portrayed, really and truly, what you and I deserve forever. My sins. And there on the cross, it's not me paying for it. It's not you paying for it. It's Christ paying for it. And this causes within our hearts the welling up of both wondrous love to Him who was so willingly crucified and yet sincere despising of our own selves and of our own sins that so ordered this arrangement. Christ crucified for us brings about a detesting of our sin. For passing on, you can note this by way of uh, connection. If you wish to grow in hatred of your sins, if you wish truly to look upon sin as you should look upon it, if you wish to gain strength against your sin and your foolish and silly and trivial love to this world, love for man's applause, love for pride, love for self, love for all of the carnalities that the world presents to us, if you wish to look upon them with newfound and strong detesting, that by God's grace would so order your life away from them, then you must, without exception, look to Christ crucified. There's no other so powerful antidote against our sins and our love for our sins as considering Christ upon the cross. This doesn't mean we shouldn't meditate upon the law of God and think about the way it's exceeding broad. How does it touch on this and that and this circumstance and all of those things? But in the end, that which truly breaks our hearts and makes us to despise this wayward love affair that we've had with sin is by looking at the purity of Christ's love expressed upon the cross. That whereas you and I deserve damnation, Christ so lovingly plunged Himself into it, and that that we might be forgiven. It is this knowledge of Christ's love displayed upon the cross, paying for our sins, that brings about a right detesting of our sins. We don't have time to open it up as it is in the next few verses, but just note again how gripping this scene is. Families isolate themselves and yet marriages separate, as it were, themselves for a season so that they can cultivate what flows from this consideration, a mourning over their sins. And this in light of the payment that frees them from their sins. This in light of the love of God displayed. And what you see is the love of God to us as sinners is the cause for our hating of our sins. Our despising of our sins. So that the Christian at one and the same time can be the one who is most filled with delight in God and filled with detesting of his sin. That these things exist in the same person 
at the same time. That one is filled with joy in the Lord and yet mourning over sin. These things take place together. Well, brethren, what's the cause? We see thirdly, there's a gracious cause. It's nothing that you and I ultimately can work up. We need to employ means. We need to consider Christ crucified. We need to pray. We need to do all of these things. But notice, it is firstly the Lord's sovereign grace. God says, I will pour upon. But let's not think that God is stingy in His sovereignty. He doesn't say, I will drip upon. He doesn't say, you know, I'll sprinkle upon. But I will pour. This notion of such an influence of grace being given with fullness is the picture that God has chosen in thinking about this scene. I will pour upon these what? The Spirit of grace and of supplications. And we know, of course, the Spirit of God is the one who leads us to pray and to ask for what we ought to ask for, that no man can pray aright without the Spirit of God. We know that He is the Spirit of grace, that He is the one by whom all of the graces of God are planted within us and multiplied and matured and bring forth fruit. But notice that it is by the Lord's sovereign work that any of us receive this Spirit. Which means one sorrow over sin truly is a testimony of tremendous sovereign grace. And also, brethren, think of this for a moment. When you sorrow over sin, the Lord is sovereignly at work in your life. When you're brought to weep over your sins and you think at that moment, if God were actually working in my life, wouldn't I be filled with joy? And yet if it's that you're sorrowing over your sin after a godly sword and in considering Christ, there is the evidence that God is at work in your life. He is crushing you as He has promised to do. He is breaking you from your love to this world in ways that you didn't know that you had love to this world. We live our lives and He brings us through these ascending steps it seems where we grow and we uh, mature and we say this is uh, tremendously gracious that God is doing this and yet we think wrongly that now we've reached the level and now we've seen all of our sins and God has in great wisdom and prudence said no you haven't and now I'm going to show you more of your heart. He shows us more of our heart and it breaks us. It brings us low. It causes us to weep. It causes us to cry out. It causes us to mourn. And we say, God, have you ever begun a work in my life? And God says, begun. I'm at work in your life right now. This is what I'm doing. I'm bringing about in your life a hatred of sin and a dependence upon my Son. I'm bringing about a breakage with this world that you might have a cleavage with me. That you might hold fast to me and know me and rely upon me. Even as He promises that He breaks us, not as an end in itself, 
but that He might dwell in us. He sweeps, as it were, the broken remnants of the world away that He might more fully establish that blessed habitation of communing with His people. The Lord's sovereign grace does it all. He does it by His inward work of the Spirit, cultivating within us these things. I challenge you to read through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and you'll see these themes brought together so clearly. The death of Christ, the Spirit of God, the work of mortification, the focus upon Christ. All of this is bound up, and it's here in one verse. Christ is central But it's not just Christ in some general thought. It's Christ as crucified. And you start to see something. You know, Paul says, we're crucified together with Christ. And that He no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. There's this union with Christ, and we see it in some form here as we look upon Him who was pierced by us. There's union with that. And that look of faith and that gracious mourning is all because of the Lord's gracious work in us. Now brethren, we must be quick to add, this is not all the cross does. But as we limit our theme this evening to repentance, we must be firm to add that this is necessarily what the cross does. Whatever else the cross does with giving of us great joy, which we hope to consider uh, in the future, it will also bring about mourning over our sins. So you see here the often overlooked evidence of faith in Christ, which is the mourning for our sins. Mourning for our sins is an evidence not of immaturity, not of lack of spirituality, but as an evidence of several things. The Lord's sovereign work, the Spirit's internal work, and faith apprehending Christ. These are the fruits of grace. They're not the only fruits of grace, but they are necessary fruits of grace. They are indissolvable fruits of grace in this life. There's no mourning in heaven, but we're in earth. There's no mourning for the perfected, but we are not yet perfected. We still have sins. And we don't just trivially say, well, you know, I sinned and no big deal. Christ died for me and that's all good and everything's fine and I'm not going to worry about it. Because what that's actually saying is we have a superficial understanding of the cross. If we understand the cross, yes, there will be measurable joy, but there will be sincerity of weeping over our sins which brought about that scene. If it is that we overlook this, then it will breed all manner of error. It will remove repentance from its evangelical moorings. So today, there's so little talk of repentance that there's a reaction that comes and then it becomes merely carnal, outward, man-centered, man-able-to-be-done. What am I going to do? I'm going to really you know, get down and do all these things on my own. And it actually removes Christ and the cross away from our focus. It can also breed a false spirituality that you know, the Christian's life is to be nothing but joy and gladness. But in truth, the joy and gladness is bound up 
with a hatred of sin. Because here's what joy and gladness is. Joy and gladness is in Christ, and yet in Christ we also find the one who suffered for my sins. And so we're glad in Christ for what He's procured for us, His love for us, but we then necessarily despise what caused His suffering for us. They go hand in hand. They're joined together. And this can surprise Christians. They're going through, and then they hit what they think is actually a season of little growth because they're taken up with weepings and sorrows and cryings out. And they think, well, if I were a Christian like everyone else says that I should be, that I would be riding upon the heights of joy all the time. When in fact, the Lord is deepening within them the capacity of enjoying Christ more fully. You see, the poor teaching on true Christian experience breeds all manner of problems when true Christian experience is experienced. If you would deepen your hatred for sin, yes, you ought to look at sin's nature, and yes, you ought to look at sin's consequences, and yes, you ought to look at what sin is and all of these things, but if you really want to deepen your hatred for sin, then you must consider Christ crucified. You must be much in meditating upon Him. You must be much in thinking about His love to us in it and His willingness to bear damnation for us. Brethren, as we close, these things being true, surely we ought to examine ourselves. Have we grieved for sin? Have we uh, this deepening, detesting of sin by thinking upon Christ? But there's encouragement as well to be found in this experience. Because what is God doing when He makes us weep over our sins? There's a lot He's doing. But one thing is this. He's actually imprinting His image more fully on you. Because He hates sin. He despises sin. He doesn't just go around happy, clappy, carrying on in life and so on and thinking, well, sin's not a big deal. It's such a big deal that the remedy He settled upon was the giving of His eternally begotten Son. And that His eternally begotten Son should be incarnate. And as the incarnate Son of God, that He should endure the wrath of God. That's how much God despises sin. And so when God brings us to hate our sins more, He's actually giving us this great privilege to be more like He is. But brethren as He makes us like He is, what is the hatred of sin but the other end of a love for righteousness? What is the hatred of the condemnation, as it were, that our sins brought about on Christ, but a love for His willingness to endure such in mercy and grace for us? You see, these are things that mutually work together. And sometimes He pours out upon us such as the Spirit of grace and supplication that we flourish with joy in the Holy Ghost. And all of these things, they have the prominent feature in our experience for a season. And that's deepening and expanding our soul's capacity to grow. 
But similarly, other times, the tone is more focused upon this mournful aspect of repentance. And yet, this isn't any less than the same thing, essentially, that He's deepening and expanding our soul's capacity to know the love of God to us and to rejoice in the wonder of that love in deepening our hatred for sin, He actually makes us see our sins better, which then makes us see our Savior better. If you want to know how much Christ loves you, then you have to see how much your sin is, how wicked it is. You need to see something more of how heinous your sins have been. These things work together. You want to know the joy of Christ being your strength? Then you need to come face to face with the immeasurable love of Christ who took upon Himself your sins. These will always be twinned in this life. And yet the mourning that we now experience in this life will give way to nothing but rejoicing in the life to come. Well, brethren, as you have before you one call to repentance and means to repentance and evidence of grace in this passage, may it be as you examine yourselves and you consider your sins that you also look to the crucified Savior. And in that one beholding of faith, you both lay hold of Him who is your salvation and find a greater delight in Him the more that you come to detest your sins. As both of those grow, they contribute to your soul's growth in the enjoyment of God, both in this life and in the life to come. Would you stand with me for prayer?